Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips podcast and videocast. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is for the week ending February 28th, 2020. And what a interesting week we had. This is a, a videocast 19 already, podcast number nine. And I'd like to kick it off, uh, just review, thank a few people, uh, Michelle McCory from I-24 News TV. I was able to join her on Tuesday night uh, when the selling began. Uh, so you could review that here on the website, or you can see all these under this featured on button at the hedgefundtips.com website. Uh, thanks for having me on, Michelle. Then uh, yesterday I was on with Liz Clayman. Thanks, Ellie Terrett, for having me on at 3.45. You can watch that. Uh, and also yesterday at 2 p.m., I had the privilege to be on uh, Shauna Smith's show on Yahoo Finance. And I'm going to start this week off and actually play the segment because it really summarizes how I'm thinking of, about the developments and uh, and and possibly what may... Uh, turn things around, which I think everyone's kind of interested in hearing. If you've already saw this clip on YouTube or Twitter or whatever, uh, just fast forward five minutes, but but this is definitely worth a listen and it will set the context for this week's video cast. So take a listen here. Breaking right now, we have the Dow plunging yet again off 857 points following its largest one-day point drop in history yesterday. Markets are poised to extend their worst streak since of 2008 financial crisis. We can see the Dow off 3.4%, S&P and NASDAQ also firmly in the red today, both down over 2%. Treasury yields also are tumbling for the seventh straight session with the 10-year yield now reaching a new record low. You can see it at 116. Joining us now for more on this, we have Dan North, Euler Hermes, North America Chief Economist. Also joined by Thomas Hayes, Chairman of Great Hill Capital. Thank you both for being here. Tom, let me start with you just in terms of the reaction that we have seen in the markets yet again today. The seventh straight day of declines. Does this make sense to you? Uh, it, it does make sense. And, you know, I could compare this, Shauna, to the euro crisis of 2011. And what the market's grappling with is an inability to quantify the risk moving forward. So as you had in the euro crisis where people were afraid that country by country would leave the eurozone and couldn't quantify the global economic implications, we're having a similar problem here. The good news is here, I believe, we'll have the ability to quantify the risk much sooner than we did in the euro crisis. The euro crisis required Draghi to step in with his bazooka and say, no mas, we'll do whatever it takes. I think here, what's going to happen if you're short, uh, watch out short sellers, because you could wake up one morning and they could come out and say, listen, we know the Gilead drug works anecdotally in China. We know that it's worked in, in different cases around the world. We have 10 more days of late stage testing right here in the US, but we're going to make it available for patients on an informed consent basis. If they said that tomorrow, the game would be over. You know, you've got your, the, the market was set up coming into this trading at 19 times forward. I think we talked mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was due for a pullback. We got a, a pullback plus. But I can say one thing Wall Street is the only place that they offer a clearance sale and no one shows up. Well, I mean, yeah, if you put it that way, then I guess there's always opportunity. Dan, when you see the market behaving like it has been over the last seven days, I mean, taking a look at some of the names today, Caterpillar, that's a bellwether, really, just for uh, global growth, that's sliding over 2%. Does this worry you at all? 
Um, it does a little bit, and I, I really can't focus on the market a whole lot itself, but I can talk about the economics behind it. First of all, it plunging so far so fast makes me think that there's a lot of fear built in that, uh, you know, that, that could bounce back to a certain extent. But I do think it is reflecting uh, some economic fundamentals. Um, you know, we were really were kind of set up on this already. Um, and that's why we've been saying for the for a while that we could see a flat or even a negative quarter in the first half. Because if you look at the underlying economy, even though a lot of people thought it looked good on top, there's a lot of things underneath that aren't quite so great. For instance, there's all kinds of stress in the labor markets. Um, the uh, wages have peaked. Job openings are plummeting. We have transportation and manufacturing already in recession. And our old friend, the yield curve, was still inverted in October. And I still believe that's a good indicator. And here we are. So it's like the market, the economy was set up for one more thing to trip it. And I think that's what's happened. And I think maybe you're seeing part of that in the stock market. Because now there's a realization that earnings are going to look bad, too. Well, Tom, when we talk about what we're seeing in the market, just taking a look at the VIX alone, hitting a high of just over 49 today, that's a serious spike really over the last couple of weeks. When, you, when we see that type of fear in the market, is do you think that there's a bit of an overreaction there? I mean, I know you're talking about before just in terms of the uncertainty, and we could see a bounce back at any time. But when we see the VIX this high, that's a little bit of a cause for concern. There's no question. But historically, uh, and to Dan, who had talked about the yield curve, mm -hmm. Historically, when the yield curve inverts, which it did in August, uh, the last three times you've had 18 months until the final market peak. So we're only, you know, uh, a third of the way there, a little bit more than a third. So, so we have some time. Credit is still available. Liquidity is available. We've had over $400 billion of liquidity pumped into the system since August of this year. Uh, on balance, I, I think there's there's opportunity out there. When you see the VIX trade trade to those levels, you know, do you go all in and do you be reckless? Absolutely not. But you start to build. And, and when I say nibbling, you start big, or at least that's what we're doing. It's not a recommendation. Mm -hmm. But you start with the big, safe, large cap companies that are, that are just trading. You know, uh, American Express, for instance, it's down like 30 points this week. You know, do you, do you, you know, as you look forward to his point about earnings, earnings in the last week have come down $1.50. So they're going to come down more. Q1 is going to be a wash. But once that you get that quantification moment, whether whether it's a drug, uh, you know, Singapore is already back to work. So it took China like two or three months to contain this, and the new cases to come down. Apple to open 85% of its stores, Starbucks to open its stores. Singapore got it done in like five weeks. They they run like a well-oiled machine. And I think in the developed world, you're going to see it also run like it ran in Singapore. And then people are going to say, okay, I get it. And then particularly if you have a drug that people can feel comfortable, like oh, my odds are extremely low. I'm not going to cancel my plans because worst case scenario, the minuscule odds that I get it, I can take this antiviral and I'm fine and then business will be back. And, and that might take, you know, that, that's certainly, you know, Q1's a wash, probably half a Q2 might be a wash. So it is going to impact to Dan's point. But once you get that quantification moment, we're going to look through and, you know, next year you're look, looking at it you know, $190 uh, of earnings for the S&P 500. Dan, what do you think the Fed is uh, closely watching just in terms of the fact as to try and to gauge whether or not they need to act and if they need to act as soon as they're meeting in March? Um, well, I think that uh, they're probably actually talking to the other major central bankers around the world and looking at this and thinking, you know, maybe if we cut rates 25 basis points, even between meetings, that could calm the financial markets and everybody else down. 
it won't do anything to help the uh, the macro economy, but it could be uh, soothing the financial markets. And that uh, I think the Fed has developed a third mandate over the past couple of decades of making sure the financial markets uh, uh, do well and don't collapse so much. So I'm pretty sure we're going to get a cut in March. We might even get a coordinated action before then. All right. Well, we'll see. Only a few weeks away. Uh, Dan North and Tom Hayes, thanks for joining me. Okay, so that kind of sets up the summary for what we want to talk about on this week's podcast. We're going to start with our article from Thursday, The Curb Your Enthusiasm Stock Market. And I, I put, put a picture of uh, Larry D David and Bernie Sanders because uh, obviously a lot of the tumult in the market is uh, linked to coronavirus and the inability to quantify it, as, as we discussed in, in that clip. But uh, lingering in the background is the momentum of, uh, of Larry David, so, I, I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in this article. But that was one of the biggest fears among um, fund managers in last week's Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey is, is the uh, black swan of a very progressive uh, um, socialist agenda getting, getting into, the, into the White House. Uh, for, and for what that means for for business, leave, leave the politics aside. It, it's it's just not a pro growth policy uh, for for business and the stock market. So in this note, um, you know, we referenced last week's last Thursday's note, which I always put these notes out once a week Thursday before the open. And it, this was the first change in outlook that we had had since August, uh, saying that the risk reward had changed to. Uh, uh, three units of reward to the upside relative to 10 units of risk to the downside. Uh, and you can review that from last week. Uh, that that turned, turned out to uh, play out pretty aggressively this week. And so what are, what are some of the good things that are happening? And then we'll, we'll cover the risks as well. Uh, first off, the good news is China has plateaued and new cases are coming down every day. So that, that is really positive news. Um, and like I said in the clip, you know, Apple's reopened 85% of their stores. Uh, Starbucks has opened up all their uh, coffee shops. So that, that tells me things are good. We're going to see the China PMI on Monday. I, I think expectations are very low, justifiably so. Uh, uh, but if you actually get a number in the 40s, that would be really bullish. 30s, people would start to panic a little bit. Um, so, you know, we'll see. But if, if it held in the 40s through all that, that would be pretty spectacular. Um, the second thing is, uh, as we said, central banks are, are standing guard to continue liquidity as needed. Um, I'm actually going to jump over here uh, to bespoke. I, I do want to talk about the China thing because this is year-to-date performance. They put out this tweet and this was really interesting. The best performing stock market or ETF in this case, Asher, uh, which covers China is actually up 8.14% in the month of February. What does that imply? It implies two things. Number one, we know the Chinese government has added immense amounts of liquidity. I think there was a $175 billion shot a week and a half ago. 
Um, so they're committed. They're handing out $1,000 to every person in Hong Kong. So they're on top of the stimulus and all that. But I think what it also implies on a relative basis is they're coming through the woods, meaning the market's discounting that the worst is behind them. And so it took them a couple months because they were a little late on acknowledging the problem and mobilizing, et cetera. But once they decided, okay, and acknowledged the problem, they, they got things together really quickly. And the market is reflecting the liquidity, but it's also reflecting the fact that they're through the woods. Uh, Singapore is in the same situation. They're now just through the woods. So all of these countries that are down, like China was in January, have the possibility of having these type rebounds if, it, if it's dealt with as quickly and efficaciously as was the case in China. And so far we're seeing like in Singapore that they've actually dealt with it more quickly and more uh, effectively than China has. And this was the result in China. So it's something to really keep your eye on and this shed a spotlight. I knew they were doing well on a relative basis. I had no idea it was they were doing this well. And if you consider the year to date is down three, that means they were down, you know, 11% plus in January. So they took, you know, it, taking the China model, um, you know, they had all these hits like the rest of the developed world that's now fearing it. Everyone was fearing China in January. They were down 11. All these countries are down 11. So maybe next month we see stuff like this as they start to come through the other side of it, show that they're contained or even sooner if we get that catalyst with the drug uh, that that is a potential out there that I talked about on uh, uh, on Fox Business and on Yahoo. So wanted to acknowledge that. Second thing is central bank standing guard. So China has led the way on this in terms of adding liquidity. Uh, I'm going to jump right to this thing from here it is. OK, McClellan. Uh, most of you know Thomas McClellan, son of Sherman McClellan, legendary research shop uh, on Wall Street. And his headline in this week's email was Fed pulling back from repos at the exact wrong time. Three weeks ago, I said something about this in the podcast that they were, you know, the worst thing that could happen is they start to signal that they're going to pull back. They probably won't wind up doing it. But while they're pretending to do it or intending to do it, uh, they want to do that. That's kind of Powell's nature. It's like when things get going, he wants to choke it off. Uh, and then he learns, no, let's not do that yet. And, and then he gets, gets back to his senses and things recover. But, you know, same, same mistake again. Uh, this is what they've been doing. And my view has always been, and, and by the way, this is why we started to talk about it, is because, you know, you saw this. This is a Fed balance sheet. So you, you gain $400 billion of liquidity, and then they started this nonsense of pulling it back, pulling it back, pulling it back, and, and this is part of the end result uh, at the exact wrong time. So hat tip to Tom McClellan for pointing that out uh, midweek. I guess that was, uh, oh, that was yesterday. So really good uh, correlation there. So Everyone's calling for cuts. Markets pricing in, like, I think, 90% chance of four cuts this year. And Bullard and these guys, I, I know um, Chair Powell came out yesterday and said, we'll do whatever it takes. 
I think they don't want to do a cut. I don't know that the market needs a cut. I think they finally understand the lagged effect of their behavior after uh, the 2018 debacle, two years of tightening. Surprise, they got an earnings recession uh, and they got a 20% crash. And now they're kind of doing the same thing here. They pulled back the liquidity as Tom pointed out and as we pointed out a few weeks ago in the balance sheet. What they should do uh, in my view, my humble view, is um, focus on this. If they don't want to cut, I don't think they need to cut, to be honest with you. But I do think that they did $785 billion of quantitative tightening, and they've only unwound about half of that. I think they need to continue to add liquidity, uh, move the repurchase uh, subscriptions back to 50 billion a day from 25 billion a day and provide liquidity that way until things settle out. But uh, if you really want to get growth going, and he said his commitment has been to bring the people at the margins who have not yet participated in the recovery. Uh, he didn't want to kill the recovery before they had a chance to participate in it. Although, you know, this type of behavior can have that effect. Uh, but these discouraged workers, you got to let the economy run hot. And doing this over the last six weeks is not letting the economy run hot. We still don't have any signs of inflation. So this, you've got another three, four hundred billion dollars that you could do to unwind quantitative tightening if you want to leave rates the same. If you want to do a cut or two, I'm sure that would be fine. But I don't think that's that's the medicine that the market needs. Keep this trajectory back up to $785 billion. Restore the full liquidity that was sucked out from quantitative tightening. You can leave rates the same or you can do a cut. But this is the name of the game. And then uh, the administration needs to do their job and get the, whether it's the Gilead or the AbV combination, but I, you know, Gilead is the front runner. Get that thing available quickly so people can just breathe and say, okay, I'm not going to get it. And if I do, there's a pill. And once people believe that, it's business as usual. And then they look at sync, they start to look rationally and logically with. Uh, with the facts versus emotionally watching all the Netflix films about pandemics and all this stuff and getting scared. So, um, so that's that on liquidity. Next thing is, uh, okay, we covered the Gilead thing, very few cases in the U.S., the bad news, which we talked about actually on Shauna's show on February 12th, was we said, look, we're, we're, what's going to start to happen because of this, the shutdowns is companies are going to start to guide down. This was February 12th. And that next Monday, literally like four days later, Apple did the guide down after the long weekend and then other companies have followed suit. So we did get the correction that was anticipated in taking the Q1. The question that the market is trying to quantify is can we get through this quickly like China and Singapore, in which case Q1 is a loss, maybe part of Q2 is a loss, but then we can start to discount the rolling 12-month earnings, forward earnings, and, and start to recover. And, um, and the drug will play a key role in that and, uh, and the containment as well and following suit in, in terms of what Singapore and China was able to do to, uh, to get through the woods. Uh, next thing is, uh, we discussed again, uh, with Michelle. So that's the same thing about quantifying the risk and that comes from the drug and that comes from, uh, getting through like Singapore and China. And this was also something that we'd covered the last couple of, uh, last week here on 
February 19th, Jennifer Ablin, U.S. Markets Editor of the Financial Times, did this article where um, we showed the facts that the notional options value as a percentage of the notional value, value of the stocks was at all-time highs. And what I laid out was the case that this was very much like 2011, which I continue to reference. After the 20% crash, the market rallied 32%. And what happens after a traumatic event, and the same thing's going to happen this time, is after the market starts to recover, managers are going to keep waiting for the next shoe to drop. And usually when everyone's waiting for the next shoe to drop is when it doesn't happen. So that's what happened in 2011 after the euro crisis. You bottomed in October. Market rallied 32%. By spring, notional options value as a percentage of total value of stocks reached an all-time high, just as it did a few weeks ago. And sure enough, after the 32% rally, you got an about 11% correction um, because when managers miss a move, they start chasing at the exact wrong time with leverage. They buy options to get more exposure to catch up for lost ground to try to catch up to their benchmarks. And that's exactly what happened. We had a 42% rally off the December 2018 lows. And in the last six weeks before this correction, everyone was chasing with leverage. And that's what Jennifer and I were warning about. And you can review this here and see how that played out. So that that was really helpful and hat tip to Jennifer for uh, allowing me to be a part of that. Next, um, there's some good things that can come out of this correction. And I think the most important thing that we're going to see happen uh, because of Germany's reliance on the Chinese economy, they've been reluctant since World War I of deficit spending because of their history and the, the negative things that came out of uh, uh, hyperinflation that they, uh, that they had during that period. So they've always been reluctant to do fiscal spending in a material way. And now the good news that's going to come out of this is they have absolutely no choice. When you look at their car production, exports, et cetera, they're going to have to finally stop relying, as is the world, over depending on monetary policy, which you know some people say is quasi-pushing on a string. We have more room here in the U.S., but a lot of the central banks around the world are, are pushing on a string in some sense. And we're going to have to get growth going through fiscal stimulus and uh, what would be amazing would be a global infrastructure spend. And Germany is the big holdout. If Germany moves on this, everyone's going to fall suit in Europe. Everyone's going to fall suit in the developed world. We're going to get it done with Congress. The Democrats want it. The Republicans want it. Everybody wants it. And Germany can lead the way. And they started to signal that midweek. And that's really good news that can can come out of this. So you definitely want to uh, look at what might be coming in terms of announcements on the fiscal side. Everyone's looking for the monetary. Maybe you'll get an announcement. Maybe you won't. I don't think I don't think that's the key at this point. I think it'll help in the short term a little bit. But if the Fed keeps the liquidity going and stops doing what they've done in the last six weeks, plus you have governments around the world committing to mass fiscal stimulus, that's going to be huge growth that will more than uh, offset this Q1 uh, short-term weakness, and we can be off to the races there. The other thing that is very interesting is 
at the end of the day, when I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, that was from like 3.45 p.m. right before the close. Uh, market was down like 900 points. The market, uh, Dow was, the, the market closed down like, uh, I guess, 300 some odd points. But look what started getting bid at the end of the day. This is ExxonMobil. Look at the volume that came in here. Total laggard, been getting beat up. Um, here's one that's been, you know, we've been building a long-term three to five-year position since on every bout of weakness since October. And exploration and production started to get a big bid at the end of the day. The other thing we saw was a lot of insider buying in the energy space this week. I mean, Richard Kinder was in, he bought $6 million of his own stock. And then you had uh, this director of Total bought uh, about $3 million of stock this week. And then there was another uh, MLP earlier in the week we posted. So there is some bargain hunting going on. You know, whether this will be right or not, or whether it rolls over again, we, we don't know. But this was very interesting in a real down week market that the worst, uh, the sector that's been under the most pressure really started to get bid. And I think the, that, that leads me to the second positive outcome that could come out of this weakness in uh, Q1 weakness is I think potentially the market is starting to sniff out an OPEC plus shock and awe cut. And I talked about this about four weeks ago on Yahoo Finance. And I said that that they were going to have to do shock and awe. And, and uh, Julie Hyman asked me, you know, like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, the market's pricing in a $500,000 cut. I think it, it'll be bigger than that. And she said, well, how much bigger? I said, well, just bigger, you know, because it's it's uh, 500,000 priced in. So I think the coronavirus might be forcing the hand of OPEC this week to do what's in their interest and do a shock and awe cut larger than 500,000. And what's so perfect about this timing is that um, they're going to be doing this monster cut just as the rest of the world is starting to get through like China and Singapore has. So you're going to get this jolt of uh, jolt cut for the, for the sector uh, just as demand is starting to pick up. And by the way, uh, you know, you've had the sanctions that have cut supply and you've had Libya has been a million barrels a day offline for a couple months now. And that's showing no signs of alleviation. So the estimates are that coronavirus so far the demand destruction has been about 900,000 barrels a day. Uh, but Libya has been offline. That's a million dollars a barrel a day. Pretty much washes it out, which is why you had, you know, relative stability. I mean, oil's down. No, there are no two ways about it. But if you add this cut in just as we're coming into growth, maybe the market's sniffing this out. Maybe not. Maybe that's just wishful thinking. But uh, we'll continue to add on weakness uh, and uh, and take the long view on this over the next three to five years. We think there's opportunity. And uh, some people think it's the end of energy, but uh, you know we'll see how it, how it plays out. Next thing, um, so those are two positive things. Obviously, more stimulus. They gave everyone in Hong Kong uh, twelve hundred, the equivalent of twelve hundred U.S. dollars helicopter money. You know, it's a short-term fix. It it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, as I laid out on Thursday, you know, there's no perfect way to trade this in the short term. Uh, the way that we're doing it is we're adding uh, selectively on, you know, large cap, high quality. You start at the top of the food chain. 
with names that have just been completely pummeled relative to their underlying fundamentals. And there are a number of these stocks, as we pointed out in this article, that in our view are pricing in literally the worst case scenario. Most are not yet at the point where they're pricing in the worst case scenario of a pandemic because the likelihood of that happening is very, very small. But there are some that are really actually getting to levels that are pricing in the worst case scenario, like things shut down for the next four to six months. Like they've come down so much through deleveraging. And I think it's highly related to certain strategies in the market that that weren't in the market um, years ago, number one, the algos. But um, more than that was you saw it in the leverage numbers with the options. You just had so many managers that missed a 42% move or at least half of it because they were waiting for the next shoe to drop or worse, not missing it, being short the whole way up. And so then they finally capitulated and bought all that call option premium. And you know when that much premium goes out uh, and is sold, they're not going to let that expire with any any value. They're going to flush that all. And that's exactly what, what just happened. So um, that's exacerbated the move because of the different hedges around that premium, et cetera. And I, 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 uh, so the way that we're looking at it is, is selectively defensive, large cap stocks that have really just overshot close to pricing in the absolute worst case scenario. And we just continue to add and build and take advantage of the clearance sale. And we'll continue to take advantage if it gets a, it gets a bit worse in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, or if we we're seeing some stability, you know, we'll we'll get a, we'll get even more aggressive. But um, there's no perfect way to do it. But you know, when the market serves up, this type of opportunity, you have have to take a little advantage. I mean, where you make your money as an active manager, it over time, is in periods of dislocation and and uh, and taking advantage of that opportunity. So, uh, okay. So the other thing is, uh, Michelle on Tuesday asked me, like, well, we, you know, Facebook and Amazon and Google were down a bunch. Would you buy those right away? And the point I made to Michelle, and you can review that again under the uh, featured on button, and that was a great question, was later. Okay, so in the Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey this month, and you can click on this link to see the results, the most crowded trade in the market is uh, or was U.S. tech and U.S. growth. So the last thing you want to add is the most crowded trade because that's where the most leverage is and that's where most of the margin calls are and that's where most of the people will have to puke first and um, get liquidity from that basket of, of stocks. So so they're gonna have the biggest moves on the downside because the, the exit door is narrow and there's so many people trying to get out at the exact same time. So those are going to have an outperformance on the downside generally in terms of percentage. And that's why we're going into more conservative things. And you can review that and have a sense of some of the type of things we're looking at. Uh, again, none of this is advice. This is only our opinion. This is just what we're doing. And, you know, uh, we're working with sophisticated investors. So this is not appropriate for, you know, regular people talk with your financial advisor this is only opinion uh click on terms on the website for all the disclaimers so moving on uh back to the picture of the article with uh larry david and bernie sanders 
As you can see, he has zero chance, you know, very low chance right now of winning the general election. But this mo huge move up that he's having a good chance of winning Super Tuesday and uh, getting the Democratic nomination has the market on edge because, like President Trump said this week, anything can happen in an election. Very low probability. Again, look at the numbers. Uh, this is from electionbettingodds.com, and you can see how they calculate that data. But, um, you know, if, if Bloomberg was winning or even Biden or even Buttigieg, you know, the market would say, OK, it's not our you know first choice. Or maybe the market would say in Bloomberg it was for some people it is their first choice that, I, you know, let's not talk about politics. Let's just talk about what the market likes. They like deregulation. They like a business friendly environment uh, and that type of thing. You may have different views on what's better for society, and that's fine. But I'm just telling you what the market likes. And this became worrisome. He's gained a lot of momentum in the last few weeks. Um, and uh, I think that's part of what you're seeing in the market. So um, we'll, we'll continue to monitor that. Okay, last few things I wanted to cover. We covered the Fed. Oh, fear and greed. This is just one indicator, but this is a compilation of seven indicators. We have about 100 on the site you can check out and learn how we go about trying to measure extremes, these market indicator videos, we have about 100 and you can see what levels they're at now and what that had foretold historically. But one of the ones we look at is a simple compilation. This is at extreme fear, it's at 10, which is you know usually a level that your risk reward to buy versus sell, uh, favor, much more favorable to buy. But as you can see down here, it can stay down at these levels when people are really scared for some time. So this was the end of uh, 2018. We know what happened there. Uh, sometimes it bounces right away and you get a V-shaped recover. Sometimes it takes a little while, like early 2018. You had the crash, bounce, retest, and then, you know, that type of thing. Uh, but even if you'd bought too early in these few instances here where it had to bottom out for a while, looking out a few months, you did fine. Uh, and that's why you were, we are, you know, slowly adding responsibly with very high quality names that have just, in our view, overextended relative to the potential risk moving forward. Okay, moving on, we do our weekly, we try to do one or two sectors of earnings. These are obviously going to change, but in the last 60 days, as of Monday, the communication and services sectors, earnings estimates for the top weights were up about 34 basis points over the last 60 days. Again, th these are probably going to change. Um, last thing I wanted to cover, which was kind of interesting as well, uh, was the earnings for the S&P. You know, off of Bloomberg, this is down to 174.98 consensus. This is from FactSet. It's at 175.74. So between the two, in the last week, S&P earnings for this year have only come down uh, between 25 cents to $1.50. Uh, they're going to come down more. There's no question about it. But the fact that they've only come down that much so far was a little surprising to me. So expect more. The market obviously discounted that this week. But again, we'll keep a close eye on that and monitor it as we move forward. So I'd like to thank you for tuning in after this uh, 
a very interesting week. We're going to be back same time, same place next week. Hope you found this helpful. I'm Tom Hayes. Have a great week.